Good evening and welcome to South Sudan in Focus on the Voice of America. I'm Nabil Biagio on this live broadcast from Studio 14 this Wednesday, January 17, 2024. Sudan has suspended its membership in the regional body IGAD ahead of a scheduled meeting to discuss the crisis in the Northeast African country. It is an indication of the confusion and lack of strategic direction in Sudan's current uh, foreign policy. Because the, the letter to the IGAD suspending Sudan's membership in the organization came from the foreign ministry. And South Sudanese journalists decry intimidation against their colleagues in what they describe as a violation of press freedom. We as a union saw this incident as a violation of media freedom as stimulated in the media laws and the traditional constitution of South Sudan 2011 as amended. We will have these stories and more coming up on South Sudan in Focus. Sudan's military-led foreign ministry has declared the country has suspended its membership in the regional body IGAD ahead of discussions on the nine-month Sudan conflict. This decision comes after IGAD extended an invitation to Rapid Support Forces Commander Mohamed Hamdan Dagalo, known as Hemeti, to join a meeting in Uganda alongside Sudan's Army Chief Abdel Fattah al-Burhan and regional leaders. We get an analysis of the move from Sudan expert Suleiman Baldo, director of the policy group Sudan Transparency and policy tracker. It is an indication of the confusion and lack of strategic direction in Sudan's current uh, foreign policy. Because the, the letter to the IGAD suspending Sudan's membership in the organization came from the foreign ministry. While a statement issued a day earlier by the Sovereign Council headed by Burhan used a softer language that conveyed some leeway uh, for Burhan to meet with uh, Himeti, uh, according to the invitation by IGAD. This tells me the direction of the political affairs of Sudan is coming from the foreign ministry. It is important to note that since the coup d'etat actually of 21st October 2021, there is no... You know, uh, the de facto situation, there is no government in Sudan. And that since the war of April 15, there is total absence of state institutions, except for the foreign ministry, which is seen by the Sudanese to represent the views, positions, and policies of the Islamist movement uh, behind uh, driving, you know, this war and using the army to achieve its objective of returning to power. Uh, And therefore, you know, uh, the letter to the IGAD means that this uh, power behind the throne is not interested in a political negotiated solution, but want to fight to the very end to achieve its political end of returning to power. And in doing so, it is only isolating Sudan from the region and from all other possible and potential mediators, as has happened in the past also. Sudan has, just like you just mentioned, has isolated itself from the region, the mediation efforts in the region. Uh, what does that mean for peace efforts in general and, uh, and peace diplomacy to resolve uh, this crisis, this nine-month-long nine conflict? Well, Sudan has cornered itself now. Rather, the, the Islamists in the foreign ministry has, have cornered Sudan. 
in a situation whereby they have already rejected the African Union as a mediator, have failed to cooperate with the Jeddah platform, with the U.S. and Kingdom of Saudi Arabia as you know, facilitators to the point of leading them to suspend, adjourn these talks indefinitely because of the failure of getting you know, a simple ceasefire uh, from the two parties. And, and now the EGAD, they're shutting the, the access to the EGAD by this letter. And therefore, this reduces the chances of a negotiated settlement, simply. And it makes uh, Hemeti, Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo, the leader of the Rapid Support Forces, look better in comparison because at least in rhetoric, he's saying he's committed to peace to a negotiated settlement, to a meeting with Burhan, with EGAT leaders, he's increasingly taking central stage while Burhan is increasingly isolating himself and appearing as as the obstacle towards uh, some negotiations to achieve peace. Uh, wh- what do you think about that? Indeed, Burhanity is making all the right moves at the diplomatic level, uh, engaging in, 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 in conversations with the UN Secretary General, his personal envoy to Sudan, to with the EGAS, uh, you know, several member states by traveling to these member states, meeting their presidents and head of government in Ethiopia. So he's, he's trying to gain international diplomatic uh, legitimacy. However, this international diplomatic legitimacy cannot compensate the fact that the rapid support forces have zero legitimacy in the eyes of the Sudanese people because of the conduct of their soldiers on the ground, which has been systematically abusive of the population wherever the rapid support forces have come to, you know, have uh, the upper hand militarily in any particular area, and they, they now occupy more than half of the Sudan. Both parties have issues legitimacy. That's Suleiman Baldo, Director of Sudan Transparency and Policy Tracker. He was speaking with me from the U.S. state of New Jersey this past hour. The Union of Journalists of South Sudan is calling for a freer working space as the country prepares for elections at the end of this year. This comes after two journalists were intimidated and their documents were confiscated. Daniel Majakwan, the Union of Journalists Secretary General, says members were shocked by the actions. For VOA News, Manyang David Maya reports from Juba. In October 2022, the South Sudan Media Authority issued directives to journalists in the country to acquire accreditation to be recognized and protected as professional media practitioners. But even with accreditation, journalists say they continue to experience intimidation and confiscation of their equipment. On Monday, two journalists, including the president of the Journalists' Union, were intimidated while working and had their documents confiscated by members of National Security Forces. Daniel Majakwan, Secretary General for the Union of Journalists of South Sudan, says the union was shocked by the event. We as a union... So this incident as a violation of media freedom as stimulated in the media laws and the transitional constitution of South Sudan 2011 as amended. We urge anybody and particularly the security personnel who might have any grievances against journalists or media workers to follow or adhere to Media Authority Act 2013 
The 2013 Media Authority Act allows the authority, a government institution under the Ministry of Information, to handle all cases and complaints regarding the work of journalists and media in the country. The Journalist Union says as South Sudan prepares for elections in December, the role of a free press is crucial. As the country is anticipating the first ever general election, it is important for the relevant security sector to comprehend the work of the journalists and media workers in South Sudan. This is to foster a pluralistic, independent and vibrant media in South Sudan. So if this has to happen, we therefore call on the media authority to take the lead and educate the government security agencies on their role. A Juba-based journalist who asked not to be named for fear of reprisal from security forces says he's worried about the freedom of journalists to do their work ahead of the first election since independence in 2011. When it comes to security, everyone should worry, you know. If this is happening in Juba, how about in uh, other states? Journalists will need to go to the states, uh, move around. The security, I don't think where that is guaranteed. Irene Aya, Director for Association of Media Development in South Sudan, or AMDIS, says the harassment of the president of the Journalist Union is worrying. This was really unwelcoming harassment that happened to the president of the union. If it can happen to the Union of Journalists President, what about to the ordinary journalists or the young journalists who are just beginning to practice? So the situation is very worrying. Our stand as AMDIS, we are appealing to the government and everybody to take all the media-related cases to the media authority. Elijah Alier, Managing Director for the South Sudan's Media Authority, says his office will continue to inform security forces about the media laws and legal procedures in handling the work of journalists. We will continue engaging the, the authorities for them to realize the importance of the media and the journalists. Uh, the incident that happened was isolated. It is new people who were not oriented well. But those who, have, who used to be in duty, they know what they do. Uh, new security personnel, they need to be informed about the importance and the role of the media. When they see the journalists, they should be able to support them. The Union of Journalists says it retrieved the confiscated document on Tuesday and the director of National Security Political Affairs Division, quote, apologized and expressed regret for the ignorance of his subordinate, end quote. Aliar says the media authority is preparing guidelines to help security personnel and journalists to do their work without interference during the forthcoming elections. For VOA News, Amanyang David Mayor in Juba. The UN's Children's Fund is worried about a cholera outbreak in Africa that has spread to at least 10 countries, with the situation in Zambia and Zimbabwe very serious. Columbus Mavunga reports from Harare, where some independent health experts are urging the government to declare the waterborne disease a national disaster so that international aid agencies like WHO, UNICEF and USAID can chip in. The regional health advisor for UNICEF in Eastern and Southern Africa says 10 countries on the continent have active cholera outbreaks with about 
200,000 reported cases and more than 3,000 lives taken by the waterborne disease. Of the 10 countries, Ethiopia, Mozambique, Tanzania, Somalia, Zambia and Zimbabwe are in acute cholera crisis, Dr. Paul Ngwakum says. Zambia and Zimbabwe are experiencing an exponential rise in the number of cases since the festive season. The key drivers are long-term poor water sanitation and hygiene conditions, exacerbated by changing weather patterns, climate change leading to floods and droughts, end-of-year festivities, inadequate community sensitization, late care-seeking behavior for those that are affected. Children, unfortunately, carry the lion's share of the affected cases. For example, over 52% of the cases in Zambia are children less than 15 years old. Wakum says Zambia and Zimbabwe are experiencing an exponential rise in the number of cases since the Christmas and New Year holidays with 1,000 cholera cases reported a week in each of the neighboring countries. The situation in Zambia and Zimbabwe is very serious. These two countries are the most affected in the region. In Zambia, nine out of the 10 provinces are reporting cases. Another challenge is the high case fatality rate. 4% of the over 9,000 cases have died. This is extremely high because the acceptable threshold is below 1%. Since the beginning of 2024 alone, Zimbabwe has recorded over 17,000 cases with about 384 deaths. Case fatality rate also above 2%. And this continues to spread geographically. In Zimbabwe, shortages of purified water are forcing residents to depend on open sources. That along with uncollected refuse and running sewage are being blamed for the waterborne disease. Douglas Mombeshora, Zimbabwe's health minister, says the central government is doing all it can to contain the outbreak. He says they are starting in the country's capital, Harare. It is duty of government to intervene wherever they see things are not moving properly. If you move around the city of Harare, people are just dumping garbage in undesignated areas and this has not been collected. So government has mobilized the resources so that we clean up Harare. And government is moving in to mobilize resources to procure water treatment chemicals. Supply of potable water has dropped from 350 megaliters to 200 megaliters per day. Itairu Sike, executive director of the Community Working Group on Health in Zimbabwe, has on social media called on the government to declare a national disaster so that international aid agencies like WHO, UNICEF, and USAID can swiftly help to contain the cholera outbreak. All measures to end cholera are within the purview of the government, central government or local government, by providing safe water, safe sanitation, and also hygienic waste disposal. So the buck stops with the government in making sure that the people are provided with an interrupted supply of potable water. Refuse is collected on time. Best sewer pipes are also fixed timeously. And the general public are given information 
about cholera guidelines and protocols. UNICEF fears that if the outbreaks are not brought under control, it will mean schools closing, as in the case in Zambia, and children losing out on learning. Columbus Mafungam, VOA News, Harare. You're listening to South Sudan in Focus on the Voice of America. Coming up, we'll bring you more health news after this break. Stay tuned. Hey, folks, I'm Luck Bill Yabaro, and I have some electrifying news for you. AFCON 2023 is here, and I'll be at Ivory Coast covering all things AFCON for VOA Africa. We'll have exciting coverage on radio, TV, and all of our digital platforms. Make sure you check out voaafrica.com for AFCON updates. Stay locked right here on VOA Africa. You're listening to South Sudan in Focus on the Voice of America. University researchers in the U.S. state of Maryland are, are using artificial intelligence to better diagnose and treat serious medical conditions. VOA's Julia Tabo has more in this episode of Log On. Biomedical engineering researchers at Johns Hopkins University are working to transform heart patient care. They can now create a personalized digital model of a patient's heart, a digital twin, and use artificial intelligence to help better predict who is most at risk. We do contrast-enhanced MRI of the heart, and then we combine that contrast-enhanced um, MRI with all the clinical data that's known for the patient. This is combined with survival analysis, and we can tell over 10 years what is the risk of a patient of having sudden cardiac death. Unlike segmented images most often used today, Professor Natalia Trayanova says the whole images of the heart produce more accurate predictions of which patients need defibrillators. We provide these deep learning algorithms that are multimodality. They represent the patient's condition much better. At the Sydney Kimmel Comprehensive Cancer Center at Johns Hopkins, Dr. Victor Velkulsku is leading research into developing new ways of detecting early-stage lung and other cancers. He and his team observed that cancer cells grow and replicate more chaotically than normal cells. So when those cells die, they leave behind telltale characteristics of fragments of DNA circulating in the blood called cell-free DNA, which carries clues about whether a person may have cancer. The team developed a technology called Delphi, which uses novel machine learning algorithms to analyze fragments of that cell-free DNA. We look in the blood, we identify molecules of DNA called cell-free DNA, and we look for the profile or the patterns of this cell-free DNA as a way to identify those individuals who have cancer versus those that don't. Malkusku says improved blood tests could lead to greater cancer screenings worldwide. Julie Tabo, VOA News. Baltimore, Maryland. Catholics, Catholic bishops in Malawi have joined the African bishops defying the recent Vatican declaration allowing the blessing of same-sex unions. Jimwemwe Padatha has more from the capital Lilongwe. Malawi is a majority Christian country dominated by Roman Catholics who make up about 20% of the Christian community according to a 2018 population census. Many Catholics, including Catholic Church leadership, say they are struggling to follow through with a mid-December announcement by the Vatican permitting priests to bless same-sex unions. 
The Reverend Valeriano Mtega, Secretary General of the Episcopal Conference of Malawi, made up of the country's Catholic bishops, said the churches for now are still prohibiting same-sex blessings. We have moral values to protect and cultural values as well, which have to go in tandem with the teaching of the church. So it's not being inflexible or not being uh, rigid. It is past in nature. And so it can be taken on board or not be taken on board. So we have chosen not to take it wholesomely that uh, we have to bless people's subject union. Some Catholic residents, such as Christopher Land of Lilongwe, Malawi's capital, also say they can't support same-sex blessings. My stand is a big no to, to same-sex marriages. They're saying two things at once. Teaching says um, marriage between a male and female. Several other Catholic churches in Africa, including those in Nigeria and Kenya, have also rejected the Vatican declaration. But despite that, some in the LGBTQI community who asked to remain anonymous due to security fears, are hopeful and say they are eagerly waiting for the blessings. In a country like Malawi, I know it's really going to take uh, some time. If given a chance, I would go for it. But so much to say that I, I, I really don't see that happening uh, the soonest. Uh, in, in African countries. The declaration has not only sparked debate among Christians, but also within human rights borders. Wonderful Mkuche, chairperson of the rights advocacy group Humanist Malawi, thinks the position by African churches like Malawi will likely change. That's uh, an idea that is going to be settling down among uh, uh, people uh, in the country, uh, not just the uh, Catholic uh, festivals. So in the coming years, we can see uh, a change of uh, stance uh, by some of the members or even the leaders. Changing minds may not be easy. In July 2023, religious leaders led street protests against homosexuality, which currently is a criminal offense within a maximum sentence of 14 years imprisonment. Pope Francis, in the days after the declaration, acknowledged the controversy and encouraged people to embrace change. Chimwewe Barata, VOA News, Lilongwe. It's the fifth day of competition at the Africa Cup of Nations football tournament in Ivory Coast. In the results Tuesday, Burkina Faso edged Mauritania 1-0, Mali defeated South Africa 2-0, and the brave warriors of Namibia lived up to their nickname, upsetting Tunisia 1-0 for their first ever Nations Cup victory. For reaction, Sunny Young spoke with VOA colleague Mokbel Yabro, who is in Ivory Coast covering the tournament. Sonny, to be quite honest with you, uh, yeah, this is probably the biggest upset so far in the games, uh, 1-0. Uh, but honestly speaking, Namibia played a tremendous game. Uh, they had more shots uh, than Tunisia. They had more shots on target as well, 6-4 to four, uh, in their favor. Their passing accuracy was relatively similar, and uh, they had almost just as many corners. So uh, the one discrepancy really was ball possession where Tunisia had 62% uh, to 38%. But we talk about this all the time, Sonny. Ball possession without creativity really just means you're holding on to the ball. So, you know, the numbers are skewed. They look a certain way, but it doesn't really uh, turn into any kind of development. So... Shout out to Namibia, 
they did a, a, a heck of a performance, and uh, they should really, really be proud of themselves uh, for showing what they can do in that first introductory game against a uh, highly expected uh, Tunisia team. Muckbill, the Eagles of Mali, they get off to a good start at the Nations Cup, beating Bafana Bafana of South Africa 2-0. Uh, your thoughts on that match? While watching the game, I, I thought to myself, hey, uh, South Africa had an early, early opportunity uh, to get a penalty kick, and unfortunately, they botched it. That could have been you know, sometimes when you get a goal that early, it changes your playing style. You really could go up 1-0 and just park the bus and play a solid, you know, 70 minutes or so of just defense. Have everyone back here kicking the ball out at any given opportunity, getting subs. Uh, but because of that missed opportunity, they had to really get back into an offensive style. And they got beat in the counter quite a few times. Uh, and Mali's just a very dominating force, forceful team. Uh, so it's difficult to keep them away, even if you want to. Um, and, and I think that it really showed. But to be honest with you, though, Sonny, uh, South Africa, even though they lost, they still had a couple of opportunities, and, and they actually had uh, more ball possession as well, but it was that Mali was utilizing their possession in a better way and were just more clinical inside, uh, you know, striking range. Muckbill in the other match on Tuesday, the Stallions of Burkina Faso get a late penalty kick from Bertrand Traore to beat Mauritania 1-0. How does that match uh, stand up at this tournament? That match was kind of relatively balanced. Wasn't too many uh, real opportunities for the shots on goal uh, as I was watching it. I, I seen that, you know, the game could have went either way. Uh, I think a draw for both teams would have been the most fair result. Uh, but at the same time, uh, th this is what happens when you, you know, when you're not um, – disciplined uh in the box when your opposition is in there you know things like this happen so uh shout out to burkina faso for making it for getting it done uh and uh, not only being awarded the penalty but also scoring it because as we've seen already in the tournament being awarded a penalty kick does not necessarily mean uh, uh that's a free goal so you still got to get the job done score uh and burkina did that so with that even though it wasn't a great performance for them i'm sure they are ecstatic to to be able to get better and play better in their next match while still having the luxury of having a win in their first game. That's VOA reporter Mokbeliabro, who is in Ivory Coast covering the Africa Cup of Nations football tournament. And he spoke with Sunny Young from the Ivorian commercial capital of Abidjan. And that's all we have for you this Wednesday. Don't forget to check out voaafrica.com for all your favorite programs and news updates. If you miss this broadcast, go to www.voaafrica.com forward slash South Sudan. We now leave you with Chop My Money by P-Square. Every guy wanna jump on your behind It's your seduction They make sure that we stay in line Sexual corruption Cause I'll kill anyone for your time Tie-eye, tie-eye, yeah Even though I make real dough 
I'm your host, Nabil Biagio in Washington. On behalf of our producer, Kwame Ofor, and engineer, Justin Twaits, thanks for taking the time to be with us. Remember to join us again tomorrow for another edition of South Sudan in Focus from the Voice of America. Stop my